let's begin with prayer. Thank you, dear Lord, for bringing us together to open up your word, to learn, to encourage each other, and to know what you've done and what you've said. Help us not only believe what you said, but live accordingly by your power and grace we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. I could use someone to read the text, which is Acts 9, 19 to 25. Adam said that he would if somebody can get him the mic. <laughs> Acts 9, 19 to 25. And taking food, he was strengthened. For some days he was with the disciples at Damascus, and immediately he proclaimed Jesus in the synagogue, saying, He is the Son of God. And all who heard him were amazed and said, Is not this man who made havoc in Jerusalem of those who called upon this name? And has he not come here for this purpose, to bring them bound before the chief priests? But... Saul increased all the more in strength and confounded the Jews who lived in Damascus by proving that Jesus was the Christ. When many days had passed, uh, the Jews plotted to kill him, but their plot became known to Saul. A little better in the mic. Uh, they were, there you go. Uh, they were there you go. watching the gates uh, day and night in order to kill him, but his disciples took him by night and let him down through an opening in the wall, lowering him in a basket. Okay, I bet you everybody heard this story if you grew up in Sunday school in a church. Every Sunday school curricula or curriculum that was ever written, this is such a cool deal. You got to show the little guy in the basket going. (laughs) You're looking for visual things that are interesting to kids. So I'm guessing you heard this story before okay now I start with 19b because the last it's kind of odd that that last little phrase that belonged with verse 18 was stuck at 19 or that first phrase and he was given food with strengthened but so be it so Saul was with the disciples in Damascus for some days immediately he began proclaiming Jesus in the synagogue, he is the son of God. So right after Saul's conversion, which is narrated in Acts 19, already he's preaching Christ. It's the first thing he does. And this was the very man who had persecuted Christians and hated the gospel. So I was going to quote uh, Dr. Peterson. David Peterson has a good, really good commentary on Acts. But one of the things that Luke does is he uses different key figures as Acts goes along as far as the people. And... Earlier, Stephen was the key person, and then Philip was the key person, and now Saul, who later will be called Paul, becomes the key person, although we're certainly not done with Peter, because he'll come up again in the next chapter. But here's what Peterson says. Shifts in the central character of the narrative from Peter to Stephen to Philip to Saul, could fragment the narrative. But the narrator stresses the similarity of the mission that the central characters share, calling this similarity to our attention through similar descriptive phrases. The procedure unifies the narrative and gives this mission central thematic significance. And this is very much true. I've been telling you since I started preaching through Acts that the thematic verse is Acts 1-8. And the rest of 
Acts shows how Acts 1-8 literally happens. It says in Acts 1-8, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you and you shall be my witnesses both in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria, even to the remotest part of the earth. Now, we saw the remotest part of the earth actually happens earlier in in Acts because the Ethiopian goes as a witness. Now, one important truth that I've emphasized over the last 15 years is that there's a way to know what is indeed a true work of the Spirit. And we're coming up on that again in 1 John. When we get to chapter 4, in about three weeks or four weeks, I'll be preaching on it. And that is that when the Holy Spirit comes upon someone, they preach Christ. Again and again and again. We have a DVD. Actually, I have a copy of it in my briefcase. Uh, we, we, by God's providence, we ended up with this huge terabyte hard drive where our daughter Jessica had backed up hundreds of videos back when we were in that other building. And she's able to recover those with the right software, which we got. And so one of the ones she recovered is a special message I did at a faith at risk called How to Discern a True Work of the Spirit. And it was about the Holy Spirit coming upon people. They preached Christ. And I watched this entire DVD because i trying to remember what it was I preached, whatever, 10 years ago. And I was amazed. In fact, one of the evidences I showed was that if the Holy Spirit comes on a false prophet, they preach Christ. Yeah, you, you knew him, didn't you? He said Balaam. Was Balaam a false prophet? No doubt. In fact, he kept being one even after he prophesied because he finally told Balak, well, you're doing the wrong thing. See, Balak was trying to pay Balaam, who was known to be a good you know, cursor, to curse Israel. And every time he opened his mouth, what happened? He blessed them. Well, one time, you know, see, normally he'd go to do his divination, which he did on the high places. So he'd go to do his divination. Well, maybe I'll try it here. Or they were, maybe we'll do it here. And it actually says the Spirit came on him. And what did he do? He preached Christ. So in that DVD, I claim that you can count on this. If someone is truly anointed by the Spirit of God and they preach because of that anointing, they will proclaim Christ and they'll do it forthrightly, and they'll do it accurately. That saying he's the son of God, we'll we'll look at that, is a theological statement that's true. There's a lot of implications. And I uh, claim that this is universal truth that you can always count on. You can go all the way through Luke Acts. Early in Luke, the Holy Spirit comes on Zacharias. What does he do? Preaches Christ, who wasn't even born. Yes, bring the mic to Adam. Adam knew right away. Yeah, we're, we're going to talk about Balaam. Go ahead. Um, yeah, I love I love to see that uh, just through throughout Scripture and uh, all of God's uh, mighty deeds, His acts, His promises uh, to come. But I was thinking about you're talking about accurately. I was thinking we'll see later in Acts that you have Apollos who comes along. And he preaches accurately, but according to, he only knew John the Baptist's uh, preaching and testimony. And so they, uh, Priscilla and Aquila kind of filled, brought him up to date, and he he received the correction too. And so uh, maybe something else you could maybe glean from that is 
uh, he preached accurately as far as he knew the scriptures. But he was willing to John learn. the Baptist message, but he would also receive the, the correction yeah, that they right. brought. Somebody who truly is converted wants to know more about Christ. And they won't, go, they won't get mad if you tell them. Yeah. See, one of the gifts of God is a love for the truth. And there's a passage, I think in Thessalonians, first or second, uh, Eric would probably know or Adam, but it says they did not receive a love of the, the love of the truth so as to be saved. The word received in the Greek could be translated welcome, okay? Bring to yourself a welcome. It's used for welcoming a visitor. So when the truth comes to us, the Holy Spirit is called the spirit of truth. Is this not right? The Holy Spirit is God, the third person of the Trinity. God cannot lie. The Holy Spirit cannot lie. Now, how many false teachers do we have in America claiming they have the Holy Spirit? Dozens. And how do we know that they don't preach Christ accurately because their doctrine of Christ is in error. They claim that Christ lost his divinity and what he did on earth is no different than what we can do. So they have a false doctrine of Christ. Another thing that I've said over the last 20 years or 15 or 16 or maybe even longer, I've said this. The seeker movement can be judged on the same terms. Now, what we're going to see in 1 John 4 when we get to it is that it isn't just that you're willing to, to say, oh, yeah, I believe that. Confessing Christ isn't the same as saying, oh, yeah, I believe that. But you wouldn't preach it in a million years. Do you see what I mean? There are people that we've challenged who said, oh, yeah, I have an accurate doctrine of Christ you can find in the back of our denominational hymnal. But the same person who points to his hymnal, put him in a pulpit with a Bible, and he wouldn't preach Christ in 10 years. Why not? Because he doesn't have the Holy Spirit. Why not? Because he's not regenerate. Why not? Because he's just doing this for a job. He could care less about the gospel. Yeah, I have a question. It's right along that line. I, uh, I've read various authors and been very disturbed. And I won't name – well, I'll, it's Tim Keller is the guy that I, I read okay. some of his things. And, and uh, he, uh, he wrote a book called The Prodigal God in which he just lambastes what he calls Bible-believing religious people. And I read this thing, and I, I was appalled by it, and I found myself, and Barb and I have wondered, is he even a believer or not? In other words, and I don't want to get off on a big tangent here, but we got, we got the difference between false teachers and people who are not even followers of Jesus Christ. And I question some of these people whether they're even followers of Jesus Christ when they can, when they can be so hateful towards other brothers and sisters in Christ and, and, and like you mentioned, where the gospel just isn't part of what they're talking about. Well, I can't comment on Tim Keller. I've never read the, the person. But I think you could apply, Eric, um, what we've learned in First John, that we love the brothers. Okay, that was something that was emphasized by Jesus in his sermon or the, the vine and the branches and but see I think we just fail to literally apply what it says if you refer to Bible believing Christians who do confess Christ and are willing to live according to the terms of the new covenant and to build on the rock if you say oh it's the, those people all oh, those those born-again types. Yeah, yuck. Well, why would you feel that way? Do you see what I mean? There's something... Why, why is there such a distaste for people who love Christ? There, I think we need to consider that 
more seriously, John definitely does. If I accurately am reading First John, I believe that I am. He, he takes it as important that we love the, the brothers and sisters. Now, I know there's a lot of false ones, but John tells us about that, too. They weren't really of us. Yes. Uh, the, Jesus tells us to have discernment. So we pray for us, either as a church or as an individual, to have that discernment. Now, if somebody is not, if a pastor is not preaching Christ, that's pretty easy to discern. He either is or he isn't. But when it comes, there, there's some gray area there, if you will, where it takes discernment to see what exactly that message is, whether it's a, a social a Bible, whether it's all kinds of different things that have crept in to somebody's message. Okay. So it, it does take all a right, certain let's element talk about of discernment. That. I, it's possible that somebody really knows Christ and will preach the gospel now, now and then and has other things that need correcting. The question is, do we love the truth? That's, that's really what it boils down to. And we don't want to become parochial. Some of the most nasty stuff that's ever been directed at me has come from people who are utterly parochial. What does that mean? Parochial, here's how I define it. We're right because we're us. That's all you need to know. That is not biblical discernment. Now, they won't be so brazen usually to just say that, but that's really what it boils down to. And we have to use this confession of Christ. I saw in the 80s, back when video were on VHS tapes, remember that? Oh, you're all old enough. We used to buy ones from John Ankerberg because he had videos where he'd get scholars and people to, you know, debate with liberals or unbelievers. or Well, one of my favorite was Dr. Walter Martin debating some of these guys from this apostolic church out on I-94 the, the deny the Trinity. Have you heard of those? Jesus-only Pentecostals? So here's Walter Martin debating these guys. And they're going back and forth, and these guys would just throw out their little proof that there's no trinity. And um, did anybody besides me see that? Was any of you around then with Ankerberg? Anyhow, <laughs> here, here's what Martin finally did at the end. He, he wanted to see if they would say he's a Christian. So Walter Martin preached the gospel to them. He confessed Christ. He confessed salvation. He confessed the virgin birth, the resurrection of Christ, the ascension of Christ, that Christ is coming again bodily to judge the living and the dead. He confessed Christ and preached it right to them. And he said to them, would you say that I'm a Christian? They wouldn't do it. They wouldn't do it. Because they say, Unless you're rebaptized in the name of Jesus only, you're going to hell. That's parochial. Nobody's a Christian but us in our little group with all of our stupid doctrines. And we cannot be corrected by anybody. Uh, now, I've run into those people in that thinking. It's some not quite as bad as the Jesus only, but they just are unbelievable. I wrote the article about Les Feldig denying that the teachings of Christ are binding on the church. And I said, you cannot claim that Jesus has no authority over his own church. You should have seen the hate mail I got. All his followers. If Les Feldig didn't say it, it's not true. I talked to a pastor who had somebody's church that was deceived by that. 
and he was debating with that person. They'd say, I don't know. I'll, I'll have to ask Les. They'd call him. I don't know. I'll have to ask Les. The only thing they knew is what Les said. Well, now, the question is, did the New Testament apostles believe that the teachings of Christ were binding on the church? Yes. And I was able to prove that in my article. All of the people were angry. That's parochial. Went to Mark. Thus he declared all foods clean. We were just talking about that in the radio. We were just uh, this last week. So I said to lesson followers, to whom did he declare all foods clean? To the church. But they're saying, oh no, only the teachings of Paul are binding on the church. Mark is not. Well, but he was saying the Jews still had to keep the law. So in Mark, it declares all food clean to the Jews who he says still have to keep the law. So what in the world was Jesus talking about? Okay, don't be deceived. We're not right because we're us. If we're right, it's only because we've listened to what God said in his word. Go ahead. How come I'm not getting anything here? Here. Oh, it's not on. <laughs> on off. On off. It's <laughs> when you're going to fly an airplane. On right. is important. I, on is on. Wow. Okay. Very good. He's a pilot. <laughs> Just teasing. Pretty bad. <laughs> I forgot there was a switch on there. But in Acts 7, Stephen really rebukes the Jews for the same, saying, look, you're not right just because you're you. They had distorted the scriptures, missed Jesus Christ, and here they thought they were right merely because they were them. They were the descendants of Abraham, Isaac, yeah. and Jacob. And so that's why Paul was such a threat here. Exactly. He was one of them who was converted. Now what are we going to do? That's why there's so much attack on new converts. Eric, you have the mic back there? Could you read? Do you have a Bible too? Yep. Romans 1, 1 through 4. Okay, just uh, just have to turn to it here. Romans 1, 1 through 4. Yes. Okay. We're interested in Jesus being the Son of God. Okay. Romans 1, 1 through 4. Paul, a bondservant of Christ Jesus, called as an apostle, set apart for the gospel of God, which he promised beforehand through his prophets, in the Holy Scriptures concerning his son who was born of a descendant of David according to the flesh who was declared the son of God with power by the resurrection from the dead according to the spirit of holiness Jesus Christ our Lord okay he was declared the son of God with power by the resurrection of the dead my powerpoint mentions that in Luke this is thematic and it is found here in this verse in Acts. Luke 132, 135, 338, 4, 3 through 9, 22, 7. It's declared indeed that Jesus is the Son of God. Why is it important that Jesus is declared to be the Son of God? Anybody? Here's, here we go. I think it's because... He had to be true God in order to pay the infinite price for our sins. True God in addition, and true man. In addition to being true man, right. Good. Amen. Anybody else? Free, free, free coffee. Eric? Go ahead, Eric. No, I just said free coffee to her. <laughs> oh, yeah. Lots of free coffee. Just voting for that. I was just going to say, I found this verse, I, I was uh, trying to remember it. It says, this is the fate of those who trust in themselves and their followers who approve their sayings. It just reminded me of those, that name that you were mentioning. Yeah. They trust in themselves that they're righteous. Dr. Peterson says, but how was he able to preach so soon after his conversion with clarity and conviction? I'll be, I'll be right there. Doubtless Saul had gone to some trouble to inform himself concerning the erroneous teaching which he took upon himself 
to stomp out. The appearance of Jesus proved at once that Jesus was alive. Remember, he saw the resurrected Christ. And therefore, God had vindicated him that he had been right and he's a that he, Jesus, had been right and his opponents wrong, and that the new faith which was focused on him was true. So Paul, who was so convinced the Christians were wrong, he just breathed out threats of slaughter, wanting to kill them. Well, when you're against something, you learn the details of what you're against. And he knew that the Christians believed that Jesus was the Son of God. Now, here he was, resurrected, yes. Uh, one other thing about the uh, importance of the title Son of God is the Davidic covenant in 2 Samuel 7, um, God promised David that there, he would have a son with an everlasting kingdom, and so there was an expectation for this son. The greater son of yeah. David and would so also be the son of God. Very good. Absolutely. Go ahead, Eric. Yeah, another passage that's very critical in Acts is the sermon that Peter gives. He cites Psalm 110, the most prolifically quoted Old Testament psalm in the New Testament. And one of the arguments that is used is in Psalm 110.1, Yahweh says to Adonai, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. Well, Jesus uses that, remember, with the Jews. He says, well, whose son is he? And what's very interesting is in the Hebrew, it's, I think it's Yahweh says to my Adonai, right, Adam? There's a third-person masculine singular pronominal suffix on the end. I knew that. <laughs> oh, so the idea is if David is saying, Yahweh's saying this to my Lord, well, who could be the Lord of David? He's the king. He's the Lord of the greatest nation on the planet. Who's the only one that could be his Lord but God? And so that's what Jesus is driving at as he uses it. So this idea that the Messiah is going to be, yes, man, but truly God is certainly inherent within the Old Testament text. Um, Isaiah 9, 6 would allude to the same thing. Yes. Yeah. This was a claim that Christians have always made. I've mentioned a few of these verses in Luke. Let me just go to Luke 1, 32 and 33. And uh, this is what the angel said. He will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High. And the Lord God will give him the throne of his father David. So what two things do we know about him? He's the Son of God and he's the Son of David. Both. Not just Solomon, but God's, David's greater son that would come later. And he will reign over the house of Jacob forever, and his kingdom will have no end. Whose kingdom will have no end? God's. So Jesus is the Son of God. And one thing I believe you can count on, and you should, is that people who truly are anointed by the Holy Spirit not only will love Christ, but they'll love the doctrine of Christ. Because I was I'm working on a sermon for about three weeks from now. I was looking at that. People will say they love Jesus, but if you start defining Jesus, who he is and who he isn't, then they get angry. They'll love a man named Jesus who's a liberal like themselves. But if you define Christ, well, you, did you, do you believe that Jesus said that people will literally go to hell if they reject him? Oh, no, we don't believe there's a hell. But here's Jesus saying that, and you say you love Jesus. Well, that's just your interpretation. Well, no, this is not hard to interpret. There's a big cat. Well, you don't get very far, do you? That's what I ran into with the emergence, which is a new version of liberalism. The Hegelian synthesis, everything synthesizes. So if we love Jesus, we also love the doctrine of Christ, and it excites us to learn more about it. And we can't wait to learn. 
So I think Peterson made a good point. Saul probably learned this when he wanted to fight Christians. Some of the best apologists are converted atheists who, who learned and learned and learned to fight it and then realized it was true. Eric and I mentioned I had this nurse who was treating me back when I was so sick, asked me to help with her high school friend who was an atheist who fought Christians, and I asked Eric to help, and we just answered question after question after question through email, and her friend became a Christian. Now, there's somebody who wanted to know what was true, and Christians sometimes don't want to learn enough to be good apologists. But some, of, some need to do that. I think we all should, best we can. But we can't just say, you ought to be a Christian because you were raised a Lutheran. Don't look, neglect your religion. Have you heard that argument? Yeah. We should be a Christian. Don't neglect your religion. I heard that. And <laughs> I told you the story. I went to camp at 16, full of doubts. And an ordained minister told me, that Jesus was never raised from the dead. And from that point on, I already had heard that kind of thing when I was 12, but now I'm 16, a little more ready to stand on my own two feet, and I hear it again. I was done being a Christian. If Jesus isn't raised from the dead, then everything the Bible says about him isn't true. And why should I do this? I want to know truth. I'm going to go study science, which I did till I was converted. By the way, converts can study science. I just got more excited about preaching the gospel. Yes. I just wanted to talk a little bit more about the Son of God. Yes. There. I was thinking just about Matthew when he talks about the baptism of Christ and the transfiguration. The voice from heaven, this is my beloved son. Good one. Well, please listen to him. And how when you think of sonship in the Bible, you think about you're associating with God, you're an authoritative witness from God. So when he's saying these things, he's saying, this is my spokesperson. Listen to him, what he has to say. And he is going to be this prophet that's been prophesied that's going to come and to preach to people and listen to him. So I think it's kind of tying back to that where before they didn't want to listen to Christ and what he had to say and now this is the son of God we have to listen to him he is the authoritative witness and what he says must be true okay that's definitely an astute reading (laughs) I don't know that he drinks coffee but (laughs) very very good absolutely see there's an allusion there to Sinai and what happened to Sinai God spoke to Moses face to face, right? And gave him the 10 words. But Moses predicted there would be a prophet like him. And that when that prophet came, the people should listen to him. That's in Deuteronomy 18. So Mount of Transfiguration, God speaks and identifies his own son, as the one to listen to, whether this is significant. I looked it up just the other day. It's the same exact Greek word as in the Greek Old Testament of a kuo to listen. And I, I can't think of anything, but this is identifying that the new prophet is the greater Moses, only this is the son of God. So if God the Father called him the son, there's another one. That's great. Do you agree? Amen. Free coffee. <laughs> we'll have to find something that non-coffee drinkers want. I was thinking of um, John 16 also. Where, um, Jesus tells the apostles he's going to send the Holy Spirit, and the Holy Spirit will glorify me, Amen. meaning Christ. So if a teacher points to something other than Christ for your salvation... He's a false teacher. If yeah. You point to baptism or sacraments or your own good works. It's false. Everything has got to point to Jesus, and it's got to be the Jesus of Scripture, not one that they made up in their own mind. 
Yeah, this DVD, How to Discern a True Work of the Spirit, I go through all of those verses. And it's overwhelming how many there are. And I think it's totally decisive. I think we're putting it up on YouTube. Anyhow, you're right. But I have actually talked to seeker pastors and said, please, preach Christ. Get in a pulpit and preach Christ. His person, his work, blood atonement, the resurrection, repentance and faith. They won't do it. They won't deny it, but they won't do it. It's all second or third person. Well, if you go to our website under purpose-driven dot forward slash da-da-da, forward slash da-da-da, what we believe, and then when you get there, this is back then, you don't quite get it yet, you get generalities. For more information on that part, click this, and you go even deeper, and if you keep clicking... Eventually, it's there. Buried as far as can be. Now, why is it there at all if you won't preach it? Well, to scare away people like me. They wrote a book against it. Well, see, we believe this. So there it is. Click, 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 click. There it is. But the Bible's telling us, and I don't want to get ahead of the sermon in a few weeks, but 1 John 4 if any spirit confesses, confesses is an active. It's something done. You couldn't stop Saul from doing this. In fact, what happened in Acts? Well, they told him, don't preach anymore in the name of Jesus. They wouldn't stop. But if you willingly stop and bury it so far in the website, nobody will ever find it. Are you confessing Christ? No. Fail the test. Okay. Gee, I thought I'd have extra time, and I'm not even going to have enough. But I don't mind. We're talking about Christ. Acts 9.21. But all who heard him were astounded and said, Isn't this the man who in Jerusalem was destroying those who called on his on this name, and then came here for the purpose of taking them as prisoners to the chief priests. Astounded is a common word in Luke Acts to describe the reaction of people. They're astounded because they witnessed the mighty deeds of God. Saul's conversion was a mighty deed of God. He wasn't persecuting Christians in a corner. Everybody knew he was doing it. He was the hero of the Greek-speaking Jews, of the enemies of Stephen and Philip and Peter. He's the one holding the coats of the one stoning Stephen. Now he's preaching that Christ is the Son of God. The word astounded then exists to me. Common reaction to the mighty deeds of God. I'll give you some verses you can look up. Destroying means to ravish. Portheo, ravish, destroy, such as trying to destroy the church or the faith. So that's a very serious thing he was trying to do. Those who called on this name. To call on the name is probably an allusion to Joel 2.32. Joel 2.32 says, And it will come about that whoever calls on the name of the Lord will be delivered. For on Mount Zion and in Jerusalem, there will be those who escape. And as the Lord said, even among the survivors whom the Lord Calls, Joel 2.32. Acts 2.21. Peter said, And it shall be that everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. So, Joel 2.32 is fulfilled in Acts 2. 
Calling on the name is calling on Christ. Saved, sozo, means rescued from serious peril. What is the peril that we're rescued from? Is the peril that we might have low self-esteem? Is that what we're in danger of? Robert Schuller claimed that. Is the peril that we might be poor rather than rich? No. The word of faith people say that. Is the peril that we might be sick? Well, he does heal sick people, but to prove that he can rescue from a greater peril. The peril is to be lost for all eternity and to be alienated from God and to end up in hell. So if you call on the name of the Lord, the name of the Lord is not a secret word that if you utter it, you get the secret prize. The name of the Lord stands for his person and his work. Name was more than a personal identifier, though it was that. It speaks of the character, the nature, the essential attributes that would be attributed to the Lord. So when we call on Christ's name, we're calling on the Son of God, the Son of David, the Savior, the Lord, the second person of the Trinity, who is the creator of the universe. That's why when we preach the gospel... We mention who Jesus is, what he did, why we need him, and what he expects of us. I remember in the early 2000s, we were doing these outreaches out on the street. It was a great time. It was a great time. I found some pictures of it the other day. Somebody asked me about it, and I found pictures. Norman Clidoris, you were out there serving hamburgers, were you not? To the street people, whoever came... And we had wit- people witnessing all around. And uh, we were working with another group that did street evangelism. And I noticed they, they, did, they told people they needed Jesus, which was fine. But it wasn't quite, I didn't think, very adequate. So I got them together, great people, brought them in for coffee. We sat down some other day. I said, well, when we preach, we need to preach Christ. And let me explain what I mean by that. And I just said what I told you. Who he is. Then I, the creator, the virgin-born son of God, the sinless one who was raised from the dead. What he did, why we need him. We're lost, we're alienated, we're going to hell. What's he expect? Repent. They love the truth. So this guy and his wife were sitting here writing. What was that? What was that? They're writing it down. It wasn't that they didn't want to do that. But they grew up in watered-down evangelicalism and never heard anybody do it. How can you be an evangelical all your life and none of the pastors ever preach Christ? They just said, accept Jesus. I wrote an article about that. The issue isn't whether we accept Christ or God. It's whether he accepts us and on what terms. How do I know he's going to accept me? Who is a rock group? Uh, Jesus is just okay. Doobie Brothers. Doobie Brothers. There's your theologians. <laughs> oh, I got nothing against Jesus. Oh, great. Do you see what I mean? Calling on the name of the Lord implies knowing who he is. Okay, because name signifies that. Calling, crying out, implies that you know you need him, right? Being saved implies that you were lost, totally lost, alienated from God, without Christ, without God, without hope in the world, aliens to the covenants of promise, and so on and so forth. It isn't that my life is messed up and I want it to get better. So I'm lost. 
and I need Christ. Even if I'm totally happy with my life, we're still sinners. So there it is. It says, uh, Romans 10, 12, and 13, for there's no distinction between Jew and Greek, for the same Lord is Lord of all, abounding in riches for all who call, excuse me, who call on him. Romans 10, 13, whoever will call on the name of the Lord will be saved. Everything we were just talking about, that's what it implies. Verse 22, Saul became increasingly more powerful, confounded the Jews who lived in Damascus by proving that Jesus was the Messiah. Oh, we're learning more. Isn't it? I love to come to church and learn. Powerful. Philippians 4.13, I can do all things through him who strengthens me. Ephesians 6.10, finally, my brethren, be strong in the Lord, the power is might, of his might. New King James Version. Powerful doesn't mean you have a good mic and a really big sound system. I remember when I was, I've been to some meetings where this, you know, high floating evangelist would go, power! <laughs> Do you got the power of the Holy Ghost? You ever been to the meeting? Okay, that's nice, but what do you mean by that? It's the power of God to salvation for all who believe. The power isn't expressed in loudness, but in the power to change lives. Yes, Brian. Uh, When many days had elapsed, could you focus in on that a little bit? Uh, There was a long, wasn't that a long period of time? Was that years Okay, well, we got 10 minutes. Where does it say that here? When many, when the, the first part of, uh, oh, when many, I was on 22. Okay, that's the next verse. Eric is prepared to tell us all about that. <laughs> but we haven't got there yet. I, can't even get my microphone. I don't know if I'm prepared, but he is. No, <laughs> That's an interesting idea it, it actually means three years but there's a lot of debate about why Luke didn't tell us everything Paul said in in Galatians 1 but let me tell you the answer to the question before we get to it Luke had a different purpose in writing than Paul did in Galatians authorial intent solves all kinds of problems the people used to think were intractable. Because we used to think, I don't know what, maybe mechanical dictation theory or whatever. Luke has his purpose. Those three years didn't help Luke move the story along. So he just said after many days, let it go. In Galatians 1, Paul's authorial intent is to prove that he got the gospel directly from Christ so that he's very much an apostle as the others who had spent three years with him. Now that's what Eric is going to be ready to prove, but I don't know if we got time. But that's the, that's the short answer, authorial intent. Luke doesn't deny it. He's just not interested in narrating it. Confounded. Confounded, the word means confusion or consternation. Acts 2, 6 and 7. This was at Pentecost. And when this sound occurred, the crowd came together and were bewildered because each one of them was hearing them speak in his own language. And they were amazed and astounded. There's our word again, saying, why are not all these, why? Are not all these who are speaking Galileans? So they were astounded by a mighty event that was the work of the Holy Spirit. That's 
what is going on with Saul. A mighty act of the Holy Spirit converted him and caused him to proclaim, K. Russo, I meant, didn't mention that, means to preach, that Christ is the Son of God. Okay? And he was proving that Jesus was the Messiah. So he was preaching he was the Son of God, but he's more than that, he's also the Messiah. The Messiah is the Son of David. As we are saying, he's the Son of God and the Son of David. So proving is from a word that means to bring together. So here's bringing together facts from Scripture to demonstrate that something is true. And that's something we need to be prepared to do. We need to study. We need to know the Bible. We need to be prepared. Now, 2 Samuel 7, 11b through 14a, who's ready to to read that? I'll go ahead and have Eric do it. He might want to comment. Sure, let's see here. 2 Samuel 7, 11. All right. 2 Samuel 7, 11 says, uh, From the time that I appointed judges over my people Israel, and I will give you rest from all your enemies. Moreover, Yahweh declares to you that Yahweh will make you a house. When your days are fulfilled and you lie down with your fathers, I will raise up your offspring, I think it's seed, Zerah, after you, who shall come from your body, and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. I will be to him a father, and he will he shall be to me a son. When he commits, an, and then he goes on to talk about iniquity, which, which, would apply, which would apply to Solomon, the lesser son. The lesser son. But not the greater son. Exactly. Yeah. So you have the one and the many, the near and the far. Amen. Exactly. Exactly. So there's your prophecy that Jesus would be the son of David, which would be the Messiah, the Christ, the anointed one. See, in the Old Testament, kings were anointed when they literally, they poured the oil over their head when they were set aside, right? right, exactly. right. So, but Jesus anointed with the Holy Spirit, and he's the Messiah. Now, it says that he was proving Jesus is the Messiah. And uh, so Jesus is both Son of God and Messiah. Now, I want to look at, if you want to turn to this, we've got just a little time. Luke 441. Luke 441. Remember, Luke Acts is a two-volume work. It should be interpreted as such. Narrative threads that start in Luke aren't finished till Acts. Luke Acts really should be lined up together in the Bible. It would help the readers. It was early on, okay? Let me tell you something that's amazing to me. Luke 4.41. Demons also were coming out of many, shouting, You are the Son of God! But rebuking them, he would not allow them to speak because they knew him to be the Christ. Demons knew that he was the Son of God and the Son of David. Demons in Luke 4 knew what Paul preached in Acts 9. Son of God and Messiah. Now let me give you my response to that theologically. This is me. The demons knew he was the Son of God and the Christ, but Jesus silenced them. He sent Paul, Saul here, to preach exactly what the demons knew but were silenced about. Paul, not the demons, was chosen by Jesus to preach Christ. Luke Acts 2, volume work. I think it's no accident. (laughs) This is a test. Can I do it without my notes? In Luke 4, 
the demons said that you're the son of God. They knew him to be the Messiah, which would be the son of God, the son of David. In Acts 9, Saul was preaching that he's the son of God and proving that he's the Messiah. The demons were silenced. Paul was anointed to preach the exact things the demons already knew. So therefore, God ordained Saul of Tarsus to preach the truth, not demons. And just to add on to that, I mean, that's maybe a little bad bad publicity, huh? Yeah, the (laughs) demons demons were not uh, favorable, right? But he he also silences a lot of other people throughout Luke because it wasn't time. time. Uh, They they didn't understand uh, what the significance was that he was uh, God's anointed in the Son. You know, what does this mean, that he has to go and suffer and die and be crucified and rejected? And so some of that goes along with the parables. There's a not yet to it. Not only are the demons a bad source, it's too early. And the, the apostles and disciples were in a good source at the time because their theology was confused. Yeah. There's a, there's a progressive revelation, even within Luke-Acts. The time came in Acts when the Holy Spirit came. Say, Bob, real quick, this also shows that saving faith is more than just knowledge. Remember in James it says even the demons believe and they shudder. What we say is that true saving faith certainly incorporates knowledge, but you also have to have what? Fiducia, what is trust. Trust. So, yes, the demons know exactly who Christ is, but they want nothing to do with him as Lord and Savior. You and I have knowledge that he is, that is Jesus who is, says he is who he says he is, but we also trust in it. And that's the difference between just having head knowledge and having conversion. Yeah. Plus, there's no plan of salvation for demons. A- amen. Now... One minute. Next week, Eric will tell us about those three years that are missing in Acts because they are accounted for in Galatians. And then we learn something about what has to be true of an apostle earlier in Acts. So Eric will talk about that. One quick thing. I wrote a 700-word document that I hoped would be published by the Star and Trib that's why it's that short, but they wouldn't publish it. And it's, and it's entitled, We Do Not Know What Cannot Be Known. Okay? And there is a little religion in it. I mentioned this guy in 1987 who wrote a book, 88 Reasons Why Jesus Would Return in 1988. And I pointed out in my little article, there's a, this guy had... A certain flaw, and that is Jesus said nobody knows the time, right? When he'll return. So my point was 88 reasons for something you can't know adds nothing to your knowledge. Now the article's about global warming, and it's mostly science. And using science that I knew from Iowa State, I wrote the article, Senate to my grandson, who's a senior in physics at Winona, who's a very brilliant young man, I said, and he doesn't, he's not a Christian yet. I'm praying that he'll become one. But I got a great relationship with him. And I said, Taylor, attack my article from a scientific perspective and find the weakest points you can find. So what would the scientists, because in case it gets published, somebody's going to be really smart and they're going to make me look stupid. So he went through and said, okay, technically, here's something you said about differential calculus that needs to be worded differently to be unassailable, and here's this and here's that. So I took a grandson's material, rewrote it, made it, sent it back to him, said, is this solid? Finally, he said, yes. You are on safe ground scientifically. And I wrote it, but the Star and Trip would not publish it which surprised me because they published me in the past on science and religion. But they want current things, and nobody's been talking about global warming, you know, the last two weeks when I sent it. So we published it on CIC Ministry under Worldview. Uh, Christy, you have some out there? I think I have about 20 or 25. Oh, she has some. 
And I think it's locked tight. All I'm trying to prove is that what the climate is going to do in the future is unknown. And like the fact, if you can't know when Jesus is returning, because he says you can't, a thousand reasons do you no good. If you can't know what the climate's going to do, because it's too complex to be knowable, well, all the, this guy says, all the people, it doesn't mean anything. We don't know what we can't know. Now, I have a theological application to that, but we didn't get to it today. We can help ourselves spiritually by remembering that we can't know what's unknowable. I'll, let me give you one example quick. We got to go quick. What if you start worrying about what somebody else thinks about you? Uh, am I the only one who has ever done that? I have worried sometimes too much about what somebody thinks about me or a lot of people. And then I ask myself, are the thoughts and intents of the heart known to anybody but God? No. Well, so I'm not going to waste my time on something I can't know anyhow. Oh, good. There's one thing I don't have to worry about. Okay, I'm sorry, we don't have time. I went over. But I want to pick this up again. I'm telling you, this will help you a lot. We can have a lot of peace because we don't have to worry about what we can't know. Let's pray. Thank you, Lord, for helping us learn. Thank you that Jesus is the Christ in his precious name. Amen. God bless you.